You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Fell, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Samuel, Adam, and Birdsong. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Michael and Sir William Desaad. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we left off with the second Pacific Adventure Pirates in the Bay of Panama on board two ships. Bachelor's Delight carried William Dampier as pilot, Edward Davis as quartermaster, and John Cook as captain. The recently captured Spanish frigate Santa Rosa carried Pierre Le Picard, Pierre Blot, Mathurin de Marte, Revenot de Luzon, and Francois Groinet as captain. Today we're going to bring their story up to date with where we left off so many months ago. This is episode 139, The New Corsairs. When those two groups of pirates met up, they split along national lines. The English corsairs, who had been sailing with Groinet, went over to John Cook and Bachelor's Delight, namely Peter Harris and William Knight. However, George Dew stuck with the French buccaneers. That split along national lines did have something to do with the tensions among the brethren and the ancient enmity between the English and the French, but it was also a practical decision. The English had room on board Bachelor's Delight and a bark in tow they could fill up. Santa Rosa, well, a big ship with a half-galley, was filled nearly to capacity with the French. Once the crews were organized and they voted in their officers, the pirates spent a few weeks working on their vessels. Bachelor's Delight was careened and cleaned, but the carpenters got to work on Santa Rosa, turning her into a proper pirate ship. While the pirates were working on their vessels, though, they sent their bark and their half-galley back to the Gulf of San Miguel on the southern coast of modern Panama. There were yet more pirates on their way across the Isthmus. Remember the flurry of pirate meetings that took place the previous summer? These were just waves of pirates headed to the Pacific. Anyone who wanted to raid the Spanish was here at this moment. The newly arrived pirates were commanded by Jean Rose, a long-time French boucanier, 
But once they got to the Pacific, the pirates under Jean Rose split between him and de Martey and William Knight. While cruising the Gulf of San Miguel, that little fleet captured a Spanish sloop of war, likely a Coast Guard ship, and Jean Rose was given command of her. Once the entire fleet was assembled, they were five ships strong. Bachelor's Delight under Cook and Davis, Saint Rose under Groinet, a half-galley under Jean Lescouillet, a bark under William Knight, and that sloop under Jean Rose. The first mission they intended to undertake was a rescue mission, after a fashion. But it was also a raid on the richest prize in the Western Hemisphere, the Silver Fleet from Lima, bound for Panama. That same fleet of which they had word from that advice boat we talked about last time. A fleet that included not only merchantmen carrying treasure, but many men of war, fire ships, and even a few gunboats. A month ago that would have been an unthinkable prize, but now they had a chance. And while I say that it was an unthinkable prize, that's not really the case. It would have been an impossible prize, but it was definitely thinkable. That's why they were here in the first place. That's the reason that Cook and Davis took the long way around, why they captured an excellent Dutch slave vessel to turn into a pirate ship. They wanted a good ship there in the Pacific with which they could capture other good ships. Other ships that could be turned into proper pirate vessels for the pirates who came overland. That was the plan. However, I mentioned a rescue mission. John Eaton and Francis Townley were also in the Pacific, but not with this fleet we just talked about. They were out near Panama, raising hell and raising alarms. Charles Swan in the Signet was also near Panama, preparing to waltz in and ask to trade, but he didn't know about John Eaton and Francis Townley causing that trouble. He didn't know that the Panamanians, upon his arrival, would almost certainly arrest him and hang his crew. Cook and Davis and Groinet and Jean Rose and Lescouillet and that whole fleet, they needed to get to Captain Swan to rescue him. But then, with their five ships and one thousand pirates, they could blockade Panama. They could build a web into which the treasure fleet would fall, and they could capture her. This should have been the moment, the crowning achievement of the buccaneers, the moment when a fleet of pirates accomplished the dream of, well, every sea rover to ever sail the West Indies. From Francis Drake to Henry Morgan to pirates who haven't even been born yet, they were going to capture the treasure fleet. They were going to make themselves the masters of Panama and return home the richest and most famous pirates in history. So why, as they were so prepared and so motivated, why don't most people know the names of these pirates? Why aren't they as famous as Morgan or Blackbeard? Well, they failed. They really could have done it, if not for two major problems. First of all, there was the division between the English and the French. The fleet could not agree on a single commander. Groinet was in command of the Flibustier French, but Cook, on the other hand, had the English under him. Now, they agreed to work together, but they would be two separate fleets under two separate commanders. This is never a good idea. 
when the French revolutionary government, well over a century later, offered, or perhaps threatened, to send out another general to share command with the young and relatively new Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon refused. Napoleon said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that one bad general would be better than two good generals. It's a case of too many cooks in the kitchen, and that's what the pirates out of Panama had here. Two fleets with two commanders with their own goals and agendas and priorities. They agreed to work together, but even then, that took time for them to discuss and make decisions. And it was a fatal flaw. But the other fatal flaw in this fleet of pirates is that it was made up of pirates. I mean, they had the ships, they had the guns, and they had the numbers. They also had, perhaps the most important thing, the pirates had the cunning to get a fleet like this to Panama in the first place. That's something that the Royal Navy could never pull off. The Navy would attempt to sail the fleet in boldly and alert the Spanish of their presence months ahead of time. But what the pirates didn't have, and what the Royal Navy had in spades, was discipline. The pirates needed discipline were they to win a fight like this. They blockaded the port of Panama, but then, as they waited for the treasure fleet to arrive, they sort of just sat around for a while. Groinet was writing letters to the governor of Panama, who was writing letters back, but it looked a lot like nothing was getting done. But that's when Francis Townley and John Eaton, who had been cruising to the west, showed up to ruin everything. Now this is all very 80s high school movie, but Townley and Eaton appeared to make fun of Groinet. He was just sitting around wasting time while they were over there being proper pirates. They're like the bullies in an old movie. What are you doing, bro? Writing letters to the governor? Don't be lame. Then they smashed a can of natty against their head, kicked sand in your face, and walked away with half your pirates. I mean, we've all been there, right? At least we've all seen that movie. But Townley and Eaton did show up to abscond with 500 pirates in the fleet. Now, it's improper to say that they stole the pirates from Captain Groinet. Pirates were free to make their own decisions, and if Townley and Eaton had an idea that they found attractive... They were allowed to go with him. However, they were seduced away from the fleet and the plan. They were seduced away to go ashore and raid a village. A small village to the east of Panama. And sure, they got to rape a few village girls and found a cache of wine. And they even found a church to ransack with a minuscule amount of tithes inside. But wouldn't you know it, right when they decided to go ashore and sate their mini-thirsts, that's when the Peruvian treasure fleet arrived on the scene. I personally think that the Spanish commander was waiting for this very moment. I think he outplayed the pirates, because he knew that pirates were many things, but patient was not one of them. However, as to the first problem, Splitting the command between Cook and Groinet, they had no good method of communication. The fleet was spread out there in the bay. The English comprised the farthest reaches of their spider web. They were far from shore, while the French were very close to shore. 
except now, close to shore, most of the crewmen were not on those French ships. The only ships in the fleet that were not criminally undermanned at this point were Signet and Bachelor's Delight and the bark of William Knight. Now they moved in to intercept the Peruvian treasure fleet, but they were far away. The French ships who should have been able to delay the treasure fleet, Saint Rose in particular, was unable to budge. The fleet just slipped by the pirates and made it safely to the harbor of Panama. Now once the treasure ships were safely in Panama Harbor and under the guard of the big guns on the fort there, the rest of the Spanish fleet, the warships, the barks and fire ships and gunboats, they turned around. They began to make their way toward the pirates. Now, Bachelor's Delight and the other English vessels still didn't realize the Saint Rose was undermanned. They didn't know what was happening. They turned to flee. They thought, I think, that it might have been a French betrayal. I mean, what was going on here? But then they heard the pleas of the French from over the water. Cook and Davis realized that their crew was not on board. They were raiding ashore. Now, Saint Rose could get under sail, but they needed time. They would only be able to escape if the English could buy them that time. So, despite whatever enmity may have been there, Charles Swan and John Cook and Edward Davis and William Knight and all the rest turned around to face the incoming Spanish. Now this was not a ship-of-the-line style battle. It was a long-distance running battle. The English kept their distance from the Spanish. They took the occasional pot shot whenever the opportunity presented itself, but mostly they did their best to lead the Spanish away from Saint Rose. When the English saw that Saint Rose and the French were finally moving under full sail, the entire fleet turned and ran. Townley and Eaton and the five hundred French pirates who had gone ashore were able to escape as well, but by the skin of their teeth. In the aftermath of this disaster, recriminations flew back and forth. Cook and Davis were angry that Groinet had let his men go ashore. Townley and Eaton were angry that Groinet had let them take the men ashore for such meager pickings when the Peruvian treasure fleet was out there. And the men who abandoned Groinet were angry at Groinet that he let them go to get such meager pickings ashore when the treasure fleet was out there. Suffice it to say, Groinet caught the worst of it, and I think unfairly. Everyone appeared to be mad at him, and he had failed in his command, but I would be more upset with the men who, you know, abandoned the plan. But the fleet fell apart. The English contingent, Signet, Bachelor's Delight, Nicholas, and the ship of Francis Townley all went off on their own to the west. But then on 9th July, 1685, the French fleet split up as well. They voted to replace Captain Groinet and vote in Pierre Le Picard, who also sailed west in Saint-Rose. Now Jean Lescouillet, the vice-admiral of the fleet, who might have been voted in instead, was killed in the fighting there at Panama. So his men went mostly with Picard, but a few did go over to John Cook. William Knight frustrated by their failure, elected to sail south and make his way around Tierra del Fuego to return home. 
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. That left Groenet and Jean Rose. Jean Rose had his sloop of war, while Groenet had a smaller sloop and a few boats, and only fifty men left to him. For a time, Jean Rose attempted to bolster Groenet's spirits, but Groenet despaired, and Jean Rose left to follow after Saint-Rose and the English. Now most of those other pirates met up in the Gulf of Nicoya, Signet, Bachelor's Delight, Saint-Rose, Jean Rose, and Captain Eaton. They raided mostly separately, because they were smaller raids, you know, plantations and coastal towns, nothing to write home about. However, they did have men to write about it. There was a flurry of piratical activity, but it got a little hot. Francis Townley and Peter Harris sailed back east to meet up with Francois Groenet. Notably, the crewman George Dew aboard Townley's vessel, and most of the old crew of Jean Lescouillet went with them. Now, the fleet, after meeting up with Groenet, was a much more traditional pirate fleet. It was made up of sloops and barks rather than frigates. They didn't really have an admiral, instead a coalition of separate pirate vessels working together. It was the democratic ideal of small, underdog pirate ships taking on larger and more powerful imperial Spanish vessels. However, there were no men there to write down their exploits. Spanish officials did record some of their prizes, which were nothing too impressive, but we know nothing of their day-to-day life. However, in these months where pirates were at the Gulf of Nicoya, there were a flurry of deaths and reshuffling of crews. First, Captain Eaton, who had been in the Gulf of Nicoya, with the writer Ambrose Cowley aboard, left the Western Hemisphere entirely. He did so to cross the Pacific and get to Asia a few months before Signet would follow with Dampier and that lot aboard. There in the Gulf of Nicoya, or rather on the coast of Nicaragua, John Cook died probably of dysentery. 
He was replaced as Captain of Bachelor's Delight by Edward Davis. Davis and everyone who was left there in the Gulf of Nicoya went east. Ostensibly, they were going to follow William Knight to round the Cape and return home. However, to the east, that other fleet of smaller pirate vessels had seen some changes as well. Captain Townley died in battle, and he was replaced by his very popular quartermaster, George Dew. Now, we need to talk a bit about George Dew, and this is as good a place as any to introduce him. George Dew was probably English by birth. He might have been French, though, or more probably, I think, he was born in the Americas, Port Royal or Tortuga, or maybe one of the Windward colonies. Regardless of to which empire he was a subject, George Dew was not a loyal citizen of any European power. He spoke French and English and probably a good bit of Dutch, and don't think that that's because of his time at finishing school. George Dew was a provincial. He grew up in the colonies and probably grew up around pirates. I mean, even his name, George Dew, might not exactly be accurate. That's what English court records have down, but French records give him a different name, Georges Dew. Now I realize that that does sound kind of like I just said George Dew with a French accent, which is basically what's happening here. But in this case, there's a spelling difference that marks it out. Instead of D-E-W for George Dew, it's Georges D apostrophe H-O-U. That's what Ravneau de Lausanne calls him in his original French manuscript. That's what French court records call him. But whether it's Georges Dew or Georges Dew, regardless of his background, Dew always appears to have been a citizen of the world more than a citizen of an empire. The first word we have of him officially is on board a pirate ship in the West Indies that took a letter of mark and turned privateer during the war. But to my eyes, George Dew is a new breed. He's not an Englishman trying to make it in the New World. He's not a Frenchman running from oppression in Ancien Regime France. No, he's an American pirate. He may have officially been a subject of England or France, but he had no home in England or France. His loyalty was to his comrades and, of course, to his own purse. George Dew has no agenda, at least no agenda that I can discern, because none of those political or religious struggles that defined so many of the pirates had anything to do with George Dew. He's just a West Indian native who made his living raiding the Spanish and made good. However, when George Dew really makes good, he wasn't raiding the Spanish at all. Instead, he was raiding Mughal and Ottoman shipping. But that's for later on. Here we see George Dew, though, on the second Pacific adventure in his first captaincy. Dew appears to have been in a sort of command role over Peter Harris and even Francois Groenet. His ship and his crew were the biggest in the fleet, and I, well, I hesitate to make this comparison, but it sticks out at me. It's my second Napoleon reference today, and I am rereading Napoleon, A Life by Andrew Roberts, but... In his first command of an entire army, Napoleon was placed above a bunch of other generals. 
generals who had served France for decades. Now, in part, that's because the older generals had served the monarchy, while Napoleon's revolutionary credentials were pretty spotless. But Napoleon proved to be Napoleon. He was obviously amazing. He won all of the generals over. And that's kind of what happened here with Peter Harris and even Francois Groenet in regard to George Dew. He did an excellent job, and they fell in behind him and all enjoyed some success. But then, the real pirates showed up. Sailors who had credentials that overawed anything that George Dew had to offer. Saint-Rose and Jean-Rose arrived on the scene. Now, Jean-Rose was a well-known and respected pirate. He had a ton of prizes and victories under his belt, and more than likely, Dew would have fallen in behind him. However, the captain of Saint-Rose, Pierre de Picard, was a real old sea dog. He was a legend in the world of the buccaneers. If this was the same Pierre de Picard that sailed alongside Henry Morgan, and here I am choosing to believe that he was, he would have been at every major pirate event in the West Indies since 1665. And I wonder, if this were the same Pierre de Picard, I wonder if he and Charles Swan, another privateer under Henry Morgan, I wonder if they ever reminisced about their time with Morgan. I wonder if they ever sat the men down and regaled them with tales of their victory at Panama, perhaps to get them invested in the fight for Panama. I imagine them all sitting around on deck of an evening, with Charles Swan and Pierre de Picard in the center, perhaps sitting on barrels. I imagine cigar smoke rising above their heads and everyone passing around the wine. I imagine those two talking about the march across Panama. You know, they didn't have any Guna guides in those days. All they had were hostile Indian ambushes. I imagine them talking about the hillside camp just outside of Panama, of their fires that lit up like the night sky, and the river of blood from slaughtered cattle that flooded down the hill to Panama's streets. And of course, they would have talked about Morgan and their victory over a Spanish army. Whether or not that took place, Pierre de Picard was immediately and unquestionably in command of the whole fleet once they came together. Now, they might have had a similar conflict of interest had Bachelor's Delight and Edward Davis been there as well, but at the moment, Edward Davis was down at the Juan Fernandez Islands careening his vessel. However, he was heading north very shortly, as fast as possible. Because the fleet was coming together not just out of happenstance, but because of a plan. A plan that apparently was concocted by George Dew. That plan wasn't new. It had been attempted and failed at least three times before. Twice on the first Pacific adventure, killing their second admiral, and once earlier on this voyage. The plan was to attack Guayaquil. Now, we don't need to go into any real depth covering the 1687 raid on Guayaquil. We covered it in great detail back in episodes 70 and 71. In short, the fleet landed at Point St. Helena, which was an outcrop of land near the city of Guayaquil. They split up into three units. The vanguard, out front, was led by Francois Groenet. They would attack the city first. Pierre Le Picard led the majority of the troops in the main body of the army, and, serving as a sort of 
shock troop contingent was George Dew and his elite crew. The battle went well. Francois Groenet, with around a hundred troops, attacked the city and drew their attention and fire when, from the west, Pierre de Picard came in, stormed the barricades, and made his way into town. George Dew even had his moment of glory when the cavalry came out to attack the pirate forces, and he attacked them from the rear. They landed at Point St. Helena on the 5th of April, 1687, and did not leave Guayaquil until the end of May. They occupied the city for over a month, and there were excesses and even atrocities. There was looting and there was murder, but there was also torture and rape. Ravno de Luzon tries to brush all that aside, of course. He tells us that once the people of Guayaquil realized that the pirates were not demons come to eat their babies, the women grew very familiar, which we all know is nonsense. He even tells us that one widow, whose husband had been killed in the pirate attack only a few days before, fell deeply in love with him and offered to marry him and give him her husband's former office and a fine dowry, and it's all just not true. But it does make for good, exciting, romantic, high-seas adventure storytelling. If you don't remember much about the Raid on Guayaquil, it is interesting, and you should go back and listen to those episodes. In part because, well, it marks kind of an end to this story. First of all, after they finally left Guayaquil, the pirates had to leave the region. Not just that region of coastline, but the Pacific in general. I mean, after you attack a city like Guayaquil, you don't just hang around for the hammer to drop. The cavalry was coming. Plus, the pirates after Guayaquil had a ton of treasure. They needed to get back home. They had to spend it, after all. And Ravno de Luzon tells us he was lucky. He was able to convert most of his treasure to silver and gold, so it was relatively light. But other pirates had so much that it weighed them down, and they had to drop off the heaviest of it. However, Guayaquil, as the end of a chapter, does mark the death of one of my favorite pirates in this entire story. Francois Groenet was killed in action and buried at sea. Groenet was central to this story. He was not only a leader, but he was a key figure in holding together the peace between the French and English buccaneers. His death was a blow to that peace. However, in some ways, George Dew would replace him in that role, but there was one major hitch to that. George Dew did not like the Tortuga buccaneers, La Roe de Graff and his group. We might say that George Dew hated them, and the feeling was mutual, perhaps even with interest. And that mutual dislike would inform a lot of future events and lead to, well, spoilers. But keep that in the back of your mind. After Guayaquil, the fleet split up once again. Bachelor's Delight, under Captain Edward Davis, sailed south to round the Cape, as was his original plan. Nearly the rest of the fleet all sailed west toward Mexico. The Mexican coast was the one stretch of coastline in that area of the world where they might be safe. Everywhere else was on the lookout for these pirates now, and it was time for them to beat a hasty retreat. Next time, really this time, we return to the West Indies. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, 
everybody who has supported the show through other services through the website, everybody who has left us a review or a rating, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight